Merry Christmas, everybody. Welcome. Glad that you could join us. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Love your comments here. Good morning, Megan. Good to have you with us. Hey, Lewis. Good afternoon, Rob. Warren just got out of the chiropractor. He's feeling loose, feeling feeling happy. That's excellent. Good morning, Caitlin. Rob says a three-point sermon. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, Jordan. Glad you could join us in this busy season. Hey, Edgar. Good morning, Martha. All right, so we're in Romans chapter 12, and remember we're talking about, or Paul is teaching us about what it means to live with minds, thoughts that are renewed. We're, we are to be transformed by thinking differently from the way this age thinks. We are not to be conformed to the thinking of this world, this age, but be transformed by thinking differently. And as we've seen all the way through here, this has nothing to do with reading the Puritans, reading church history, reading the words of men and systematic theology and so on. It is about loving others. And Paul's giving us some very specific ways to love others. And today, in this three-point sermon, <laughs> and all three of these will, uh, will hit us right where it hurts if we're, uh, if we're not careful. So let's take a look. So verse 13, he says, to the necessities of the holy ones communicating. Now, I really like this literal translation, uh, especially the word communicating, and I'll, I'll explain that to you uh, here as we go. So does your church have what's called a benevolent fund, or sometimes they're called deacons funds? Uh, the church that I pastored for 23 plus years, uh, we had a benevolent fund, we called it. And you know how it is, it's, uh, it's the idea that you, you put um, you give in addition to your, you know, your tithes and offerings, uh, which most churches promote, uh, you give to this other fund. And then there are, uh, oftentimes deacons or, uh, maybe the elders or another, you know, subset of folks who are authorized then to distribute that money. And the idea is it's reserved for people who have temporal needs. Uh, you know, they lose their job, can't pay the mortgage, uh, or whatever. Um, they get sick and they have extra doctor bills, something along those lines. And the, the idea is that the general populace of the church aren't so much aware of the needs. Um, now this could be a couple, there could be a couple reasons for this. One is sometimes the church is just so big, it's hard for everybody to know what's going on, but there's also this, this, uh, almost stigma, that may be too strong a word, but there, there's this sense that we, we you know, we, Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when it comes to giving. And so we're so secretive about who's giving what, and we don't want anybody to feel bad if they have needs. So if only a few trusted individuals in the church are the ones in the know. So the, the people who are in need come to those deacons or the elders or whoever it is, and they let them know they have a need. Uh, and then, you know, this can all be kind of done off to the side and quiet and, and nobody's embarrassed, that kind of thing. Now, that may not be how it's done in your church, uh, but it's often 
how I've seen it done. And you, well, I ask, you know, is there biblical precedent for this? Maybe there is the um, Paul telling the church at Corinth to set aside money for the uh, the needs of those in Jerusalem. And then when I come, I will collect that money and, and take it to them or send it, send it to them kind of thing. So the idea of collecting money in a, in a pot and reserving it for needs, there's some precedent there. But I wonder if this idea of the benevolent fund, deacon's fund, that whole thing misses the point. So the statement I read to you, to the necessities of the holy ones communicating. All right, let me, let me break this down a little bit. Holy ones, first of all, who's the holy ones? Well, that's, that's Christians, right? That's the church, saints. So he's admonishing something that we are to do for other Christians. He says we are to do something for their necessities, their needs, not wants so much, right? Not, uh, not just uh, taking care of preferences and things that it just anybody would want. That's, that burden is not placed. Place, the, the church is not under obligation biblically to make sure that everybody else lives at the same standard of living. That, that's not it, right? These are needs that uh, if they don't get taken care of, there will be significant consequence to the person in need. Again, you can think of uh, they can't pay their bills. Are they going to be kicked out of their house in our day? You know, are they going to lose their car, uh, hospital bills, exorbitant, whatever, the, the real needs as opposed to trying to make everybody equally financially well off. That's, that's not an obligation. But then this word communicating. Uh, we think of communication as what I'm doing to you right now. I'm talking to you, right? I'm, I'm expressing ideas and concepts. But the word itself from its Latin root, what is the, uh, the root of communication? You've got this prefix, prefix com, and then uni is the root of this word. Well, what is the, uh, what is uni getting at? What's the, what's the root? What are the other concepts or words come from this idea of unity or union? Do you know? Let me give you a moment. Hey, Curtis, glad you could join us this morning or this afternoon for you. Uh, what, uh, what's a unit? What's union all about? Yeah, very well done, Rob. One. And the prefix, com, it means with. So when you have communicated, you haven't just talked. You haven't just shared your feelings or whatever. Communication means we are one with each other in our understanding. It doesn't mean we agree. That's not the point. The point is we are one with one another. We, we both have the same understanding of this topic. Well, this, this term uh, used to mean even more than just expressing through words, but communion as in we are one with each other. That's why we call, in many of our circles, the Lord's Supper, we call it communion. Because it is this represent, 
representation of our being one with the Lord and one with each other. We are in communion with each other. So this word communicating is actually the verb form of the Greek word koinonia, which means to be one with. So the instruction here by the apostle is that we become one with the saints in their need. It seems to me like that takes on more involvement than is true of our benevolent fund. If we are in koinonia, in in communion with the needs of the saints, we have to know what those needs are and we take on some of the burden ourselves in meeting those needs. And I, I think there's at least a danger in having this this uh, separate fund that only a, a, a handful of people are aware of, I think that robs the community of being in communion with and communicating with the needs of the saints. So regardless of the practice of your church, the point is a renewed mind is aware of the needs of fellow believers And we take those needs on ourselves and say, how can I help you meet them? That's not how the world thinks. The world might think in some ways, if I can give to an organization, let them take care of it, great, but I don't want to be bothered with it. And certainly there's plenty of folks that say, I don't want to be bothered with giving at all. I got to take care of myself. But the renewed mind, the transformed thinking leads us to say, Hey, we are one. We're all in this together. If you have a need, how can I help you? Now, you know, you, you can't meet the need of every Christian everywhere. I, I think, he, you know, he's writing to a church. And so I think the, the first application of this has to be among our local assembly, our, our, our congregations, our, our church that we are part of. So the question for you and me is, am I aware of the needs of those that are part of my fellowship And do I take them on as my own and willing to help? That's what a renewed mind, transformed mind does. And of course, that raises the issue of we have to know those needs. We have to be close enough to people where we know their needs. Now, on the flip side, if you're the one in need, you need to be close enough to people that they can know them and let them help you. There is sort of this pride uh, attached to us today where we, uh, we might go to the government for help, go to some nonprofit organization for help, but we don't really want our fellow believers to know that we have needs, which all of this just gets in the way of being that community that we are called to be. So first point to my, uh, my sermon, Rob, Are you aware of the needs? Are you close enough to people, Christians, to know their needs? And do you take them upon yourself uh, to meet them? Point number two, the hospitality pursuing. The hospitality pursuing. So this word hospitality uh, etymologically means loving strangers. 
and it says to pursue that, to run after loving strangers. Now, in uh, in ancient Greek culture, in Paul's day, this word was often used to describe travelers who needed a place to stay. You know, they didn't have uh, hotels all over the place like we do. Uh, you don't get on, you know, you don't get on Airbnb.com and and uh, reserve a room uh, somewhere on your on your trip. Uh, and, and Paul's day, you didn't do that. And if, unless you were pretty well off, you couldn't afford the ends that were there. So loving strangers would often mean providing lodging for someone traveling through. But then it took on this idea of loving others, welcoming them into your home and realizing, uh, you know, I look at the list of people on here today and Martha and Megan and Rob and, and so on. I don't, I don't know most of you, right? Apart from this and, and you hear from me, I don't, I, I read your words, but I don't hear from you so much, uh, except for those of you who become cross the crown partners. And then uh, we get on zoom together, uh, which by the way, I recommend. Okay. <laughs> um, but, at some level, we're still strangers. The question is, you know, would I welcome you into my house? Would you welcome me? Do we have this, this desire to help other believers, to, to, to uh, invite them in for a meal, for a place to stay? Or are we quick to say, you know, go to a hotel? Now, I, I, don't, I think we can overcook this. Um, Personally, if I were traveling through, especially with my wife, I don't know, might be more uh, comfortable in a hotel, but maybe it's not about our comfort. I had a guy that I have, I met once years ago and uh, at a conference that I was speaking at and he was going to be traveling through, he and his family going to be traveling through Colorado Springs. This was in the last year or so. And he reached out to me and asked if, if he could stop in, have a meal with us. And uh, I try to remember now if he asked if, if he could spend, I think, he's, I think he asked if he and his wife could spend the night here. That is so un-American and even un-Christian American. And I don't know, isn't it telling that sometimes our first instinct is, uh, mm, that'd be so uncomfortable. That'd be, I mean, I don't know these people, et cetera. And again, there's a place to not be naive and foolish and, and so on. And I would never recommend a you know, single woman letting a, a, a traveling man come through. And there's all those qualifications, but it, I think it's telling if our first instinct is, uh, that'd be awkward. I don't even know you. We have our family routines. We have all this. I don't, I don't really want to be bothered unless it's a set meeting kind of thing. That's not the kind of love that says, hey, we are one in Christ until proven otherwise. We're one in Christ and how can I bless you? Of course, you're welcome in my home. Come over for a meal, have a place to stay or whatever. Is that, is that your attitude? Now, now notice how I phrased it. Are, are until proven otherwise. As I read the New Testament, it seems to me that the default setting 
is supposed to be that when someone says they're a Christian, we take them at their word until proven otherwise. Whereas it's so easy to switch that around and say, all right, you've got to pass all of these tests, most of them theological, to convince me you're a believer before I will regard you as one. And, you know, you read the letter to the Romans, you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, they were a mess. They were a mess. And yet he starts off calling them saints. So I just wonder how, how our attitude toward other believers would change if we gave them the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise. And if our mindset was, how can I take your needs on my shoulders? And yes, I, I welcome you into my home. It's not about my convenience and comfort. It's, it's loving, it's loving the body of Christ. We are one in this together. And that's what a renewed mind does. It's different from this age. That's all about privacy and, and protecting ourselves and that kind of thing. So that's point two. That didn't, uh, bother you. <laughs> point three of the sermon, Rob. Bless those persecuting you. Bless and do not curse. Edgar says, I, was, I would welcome you to my gym. <laughs> I'd love to come work out with you someday, brother. Bless those who are persecuting you. Bless and do not curse. Now, here is just, you know, I'm a word guy. I like words. This is fascinating to me. This word right here, pursuing, and this word persecuting in the Greek is exactly the same word. Exactly. They're both participles. The only difference is the, the case ending because of the role it plays in the sentence. But that, that's, not, uh, that's a very minor difference. They're the same word. So he says, pursue loving strangers or pursue hospitality and bless those who are pursuing you. Isn't language interesting? How do we know what the intent of the words, because they both could be translated pursuing. Well, here he's saying pursue this good thing, hospitality. And here he's saying bless those who are pursuing you, bless and don't curse. So now we understand, oh, this, the pursuit here that we are to bless, this is someone who's pursuing you to do harm. I just find that very interesting. The same word is used in two phrases back to back. And in one sense, it's, uh, you pursue this good thing. And the other is bless those who are pursuing you for bad things. All right. Well, enough of that. Um, bless those who are pursuing you to do you harm. Bless and do not curse. Uh, so what does it mean to bless? What well, face value it means to speak well of, to, to pronounce good things toward. The, the Greek word is literally good word, good wording. We bless the Lord. We, we praise him. We, we speak well of him. And then it can also mean um, tangible good things that you do for others, right? We, we bless God by praising him 
and God blesses us by giving us good things. Uh, I think the emphasis here is probably on the words because the he says, bless and do not curse. And cursing is not using profanity. It's not cussing. Uh, there is no word in the in the Bible for cussing or cursing in terms of um, what we what the way we use it. Sometime I'll I'll give you my uh, uh, walkthrough of the idea of what profanity is because we Christians we talk about bad words and that that gets in the way of the intent here. Anyway, cursing is pronouncing uh, a desire for someone to experience harm. Uh, when God curses the children of Israel in the old covenant, he is pronouncing upon them devastation and harm and destruction. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to bring about horrendous pain and suffering for you. So someone who's pursuing you for harm the renewed mind, the transformed mind says, I'm not going to speak horrendous suffering and pain on you. I'm going to proclaim good things. I'm going to pray for blessing, not cursing. Jesus taught this, didn't he? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he doesn't mean there, pray down in precatory psalms. <laughs> we do see that. And one of the hard things about this, this is just a, you know, a quick statement in this long list of things. It's not the only thing the scripture has to say about this. We do have to bring in the imprecatory psalms and say, okay, what role does that play? And, and realize that we're not simply to turn a blind eye to the suffering in the world and uh, dispense with justice and loving one another by protecting. There, there, there are other, other aspects here. But in general, taking Paul's words here, we are to bless those who want to do us harm and not pronounce cursing upon them. So the first question that comes to my mind is, who is it? Who is it for us that is seeking to do us harm and um, it doesn't happen a lot it's getting potentially worse here in the u.s for instance some of you in different uh, nations uh, you know i know we've got some some folks in canada and uh, with the government support it seems pretty clear the uh, the hostility toward christianity is ramping up and it's, you know, the U.S. is not far behind. What is our attitude toward those who would do that harm to us? Paul says, bless them, don't curse them. Again, it's not the whole conversation. Doesn't mean we shouldn't vote them out of office. Doesn't mean we shouldn't appeal for justice. Uh, and those kind of things. I, I think there's biblical warrant for some response. But our attitude toward the individual that is seeking to, to do us harm, the words that we say to them should be for 
their good, which, you know, what's the best thing that can happen to them is that the Lord would grant them repentance and that kind of thing. Emily says, this is some law right here. This is royal law, holy and lofty. We are in the heights. God help us. Um, not sure. Not sure exactly what you're uh, referring to there. You might have to give me a little bit more. Lon says, harm in what sense? Deprivation of rights or bodily harm? Uh, yeah. Um, good question. Uh, Paul doesn't qualify. He just says they're pursuing you. They're persecuting you. They're, they are pursuing you. Um, I mean, I, I would certainly think the way it's used in the, uh, in the New Testament, uh, you know, wanting to put you in jail. Paul uses the same word that says, you know, this is what I did to Christians. I was pursuing them and uh, wanting to put them in jail. And in fact, uh, he did this with, uh, you know, Stephen. Uh, he endorsed Stephen's execution. Uh, so uh, it certainly would include the deprivation of rights that leads to bodily harm, I, I think. I mean, if I get thrown in jail for being a Christian, that's harmful, uh, even if they don't beat me, right? So I, I would say it's, it's all in there. Lewis says, this blessed curse meaning the same as in the book of Job. Um, okay, good. Okay, Emily says, the law of love, the law of the kings, bless and curse not. Right, that's, uh, that's what Jesus did, right? Now, again, this is not all there is to say about it. Jesus also uh, brought retribution for those who cursed him. But the sword is not ours. He's going to get into that later on in chapter 13. The, the, the sword does not belong to us as individuals. Our individual response should be to bless those who are seeking to do us harm. Um, and I, again, it's a broader question. Is there a place for self-defense? If you came upon someone being assaulted, you know, wouldn't love for your neighbor require you to, to try to stop the assault, that kind of thing. So I that's a much bigger question that that requires more thought through other scriptures. But for us right here and right now, it's worth pondering when I think of those who would want to inflict harm upon me, is my first thought, I'm going to ask blessing for them or I'm going to ask cursing. And the renewed mind, the transformed mind, does not immediately jump to cursing. Doesn't auto automatically want them to be harmed because they're trying to harm me. Yeah, uh, good point, Emily. That's that is the law of love, the, as James talks about. This is hard, isn't it? All these things are hard. Convicting. This is where the rubber meets the road. I, it, it is so easy to spend all of our time reading, reading books and uh, growing in our theological knowledge. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it's hard to please Jesus. But this is what a renewed, transformed mind looks like. So give us some thought. Go before the Lord prayerfully and say, okay, Lord, show me where I'm at on these things. And what? Just, just I'll leave you with this. Think about the difference we can make in our immediate communities and in the broader communities if Christians were to live this out with 
with zeal and passion. If we were to have these renewed minds, what an impact we would have on the world. Think about it. We will come back tomorrow and keep working through Paul's admonitions. Have a great day. God bless.